Jesus House in pursuit of God, discovering purpose, maximizing potential, impacting lives. This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London. God bless you. We continue on our journey into God's promises. Um, yeah, and today, uh, the stop on our journey uh, has to do with the revelation of God. Um, so if you want a, a, a title uh, for what I'm about to share, um, then you can title it A Revelation of God. And you know, the children of Israel had left uh, Egypt uh, two months after they left Egypt. Uh, they, they, they found themselves at a place called Rephidim and then journeyed, journeyed from there um, to the foot of Mount Sinai. Um, now, all this time, they had not really got a revelation of this God that was leading them into the promised land. And it was important that they had a revelation of him. Who is he? Um, uh, what kind of God is he? Uh, what are his characteristics? What's his nature? What's his person like? And so God decided that he was going to reveal himself uh, to the children of Israel as they uh, literally were embarking on, on this journey. And the Bible records for us in Exodus, the 19th chapter, uh, the, the God's revelation of himself to the children of Israel. It's interesting because my Bible has a title on it for that chapter, uh, the Lord reveals himself at Sinai. Um, and I'll pick up the story from verse 9. Um, I would have loved to read the whole chapter, but I'll pick up the story from verse 9. Um, then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. Then they will always trust you. Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Then the Lord told Moses, go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their clothing. Be sure they are ready on the third day. For on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as the people watch. Mark off a boundary all around the mountain. Warn the people. Be careful. Do not go up on the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be put to death. No hand may touch the person or animal that crosses the boundary. Instead, stone them or shoot them with arrows. They must be put to death. However, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then the people may go up on the mountain. So Moses went down to the people. He consecrated them for worship and they washed their clothes. He told them, get ready for the third day, and until then abstain from having sexual intercourse. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it, had descended on it in the form of fire. 
The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses climbed the mountain. I just want you to put yourself in the shoes of the children of Israel. You've been longing to meet this God. You want to know this God. Uh, you want him to reveal himself to you. He has delivered you and started to take you on a journey into his promises for you. And then you're told that this God is going to come and visit you. You're told that you have to prepare yourself. It's quite an elaborate preparation. It takes three days. You have to consecrate yourself, wash your clothes. Husband and wife have to abstain from any physical relationship with each other. You're given certain instructions. You're given warnings. You're told to be careful. You can't come near. You can't touch the mountain. You can't even touch the boundaries of the mountain. The instructions are clear. Anyone who touches the mountain will be put to death. And then if someone touches the mountain or an animal touches the mountain or crosses the boundary, then you can't touch that person or that animal that has crossed the boundary. That person or that animal must be stoned or shot with arrows. They must be put to death. And the, you will know when you should go because you will hear a ram's horn. It will sound a long blast. Then you may go up to the mountain. And then after you've gone through these elaborate preparations, of course, by this time, you're already tense. So many instructions. If you do this, you die. If you go this way, you're shot. If you do this, you're stoned to death. And then the third day finally arrives. On the morning of that day, you wake up to thunder roaring, lightning flashing. You look up at the mountain and a dense cloud has covered the mountain. And then you hear the ram's horn. It's a long, loud blast. And then Moses leads you out to the foot of the mountain. You, you line up and Moses leads you out to the foot of the mountain to meet God, for God to be revealed to you. When you arrive at the mountain, the mountain is covered with smoke. The Lord has descended on the mountain in the form of a fire. The smoke billows into the sky. The whole mountain shakes violently. The ram's horn, the blast of the ram's horn grows louder and louder. And then Moses speaks to God and God thunders his reply. And then God says to Moses, warn the people not to break through the boundaries to see the Lord or they will die. Even the priests must purify themselves so that the Lord does not break out and destroy them. Now, how many know by this time, the Bible says the children of Israel trembled. You would be trembling. Is this the God we are to relate to? Are these the things that we have to do? What hope does anybody have of relating to this God and surviving? If you put a foot wrong, it's judgment. 
If you cross the line, you are stoned to death. Touch an animal that has crossed the boundary. You're shot with arrows. You are warned not to come too close because if you do, this God breaks out. You would be saying to yourself, is this the God that we have to relate to? That was their reality. That was the revelation of God that they had. That was the sight that God showed them of his person. That was the God that they had to relate to. Now I am certain that as you think about this, you're already thinking, thank God that you're not the children of Israel. Thank God that you are in a new and better covenant. Thank God that you have Jesus Christ. Because that was their reality. But our reality is different. And sometimes I don't think we appreciate enough what we are in. But sometimes putting it against the backdrop of what was makes you appreciate what we are in. For with Jesus, our case is different. Our reality is different. God also wants to reveal himself to us. That's the whole essence of our relationship with him. They couldn't journey into the promised land without a revelation of God, but that was their revelation. We can journey into God's promises without a revelation of God, and we have our own revelation of God. We have our own reality. And what is our reality? It centers around Jesus. The Bible says in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verses 14 to 16. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. What is our own reality? Our own reality is that because of Jesus, since we have him as a high priest, we can come boldly to a throne of grace or the throne of our gracious God. We don't come to a throne of judgment. We don't come to a throne of condemnation. We don't come to a God who condemns. We come to a gracious God. And we are guaranteed that as we come to that gracious God, we will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, Jesus came to reveal God to you and I. Of course, we needed to know God. We wanted him to reveal himself to us. Jesus came to do just that. It was God's plan that we should know him. We should see him. We should understand him. That would help us better relate to him as we get more intimate with him on this journey into what he has promised us. And guess what God did? He literally sent himself in his son, Jesus, 
so that his son Jesus would reveal him to us. The Bible says it like this in Hebrews, the first chapter and the third verse. The Bible says the son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his, of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. The Passion Translation would say this. The sun is the dazzling radiance of God's splendor, the exact expression of God's true nature, his mirror image. And so that was God showing us the kind of gracious God he, was, he is. I will send my son. My son is the express image of me. He expresses my very character. He's the exact expression of my true nature. He is my mirror image. And so Jesus came for that particular purpose. What was he saying? What you see in the Son, God was saying, is me. What you see in the mirror is a reflection of me. He shows us God, reveals God to us. That's why Jesus is the focus. That's why our concentration is on Jesus. That's why he's the one that we look to. Because as we see him, we have a revelation of God. So what revelation has Jesus given us about God? There are four things out of the many that I want to share with us today. If we can grasp this four and at a deep level, it totally transforms our Christian walk because it has transformed our relationship with God. Number one, he gives us a revelation of God as love. Notice I didn't say God is loving. He is. But it's a lot deeper than that. God is love. That's who he is. And Jesus gives us the revelation of this. And you know, if you can grasp this in your life, it completely changes your life. You move from a place of agitation, worry, anxiety, stress into a place of rest. You rest in the love of God. May God help you to understand, to grasp, to perceive, to apprehend the love that God has for you. And Jesus came to reveal that. And how did he reveal it? Many ways amongst them. The most significant, the Bible outlines for us in John the 15th chapter and the 13th verse. For the greatest love of all is a love that sacrifices all. And this great love is demonstrated when a person sacrifices his life for his friends. How did God reveal his love to us? He sent his son to come and die on the cross for you and I. To sacrifice his life. To go through what he went through. All this time as he was being tortured and tormented. Beaten and bruised and battered. All this time he had you on his mind. Driven by his love for you. He clearly demonstrates if he's the express image of God. The mirror image of God. 
He clearly demonstrates by his actions that surely this God is not just a loving God. He is love. You know, the challenge, however, if we're truthful, is to grasp this truth at the, excuse me, at the dimension that we should. If you and I are truthful, we often know it here, but we don't know it here. And that is the reality. We say it, but we don't, we haven't, it hasn't become part of uh, who we are. It hasn't got into the deepest part of our beings. And how do I know it hasn't? How we react to life circumstances, how we react to tests, react to trials, react, react to difficulties, react to uncertainty. You see, because if we fully grasp the love of God, then our reaction to those things would be from a place of rest. We would be at peace at all times because we know that the God that is in control of everything, the God who created the, the, the ends of the earth, the God who rules from, the, from heaven in the affairs of men, he, I am loved by him and as a result, I can rest. So how then do we move from what is a head knowledge to something that seizes our hearts and seizes our beings. The only way we can do it, it's not by how many books on the love of God we read on its own. It's not by how many letters we read in the Bible. The Spirit of God must do it for us. Understanding, grasping, apprehending, perceiving, believing the love of God for you is a work of the Spirit of God. Frankly, our prayers all the time should be, Holy Spirit, help me to understand and grasp and apprehend the love that God has for me. That's why the Bible says in Romans, the fifth chapter and the fifth verse, and this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the work in our hearts. And when that work is done, we know, irrespective of what is happening, irrespective of the turbulence, it might seem like it's all turning upside down. It might be a trial, a difficulty, a wilderness. It doesn't matter what it is. It might be crumbling all around, but we know in our hearts that God loves me, I can rest in that because I know my Father will sort it out. May the Spirit of God reveal to you the truth that God loves you. So Jesus came and showed us by revelation expressly that God, his Father, is a God of love or is love. Number two, he shows us the revelation he gives us that God is a God of grace, that God extends grace to us. In the scripture in Hebrews, it gives us an assurance that when we come to this throne, Hebrews 4 verse 14 to 16 as we read, when we come to this throne, we are coming to the throne of a gracious God. It's a throne of grace. And that we receive grace to help us in our time of need when we need it most. You know, if there's any revelation of grace 
that came with Jesus. It surely must be the revelation that came with his birth. The revelation of unmerited favor, getting something that you don't deserve, you haven't earned. That's the revelation of God that Jesus brought. The angel appeared to his mother, Mary. And you know, his mother Mary was not one of the elders, not one of the scribes or Pharisees, not one of the learned. She was just a regular woman who passionately loved God. And she was a woman. And in those days, a woman had very few rights. Uh, she needed a man to be able to access a lot of the things in that society. She was not at the top of the pecking order. But then she was chosen. The angel appears to her. Luke 1 verse 28. The Bible says Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. In that phrase, grace is revealed. What does that phrase say? It's not your circumstances. It's not the fact that you think you don't qualify. It's not the fact that they think you don't qualify. It's not the fact that you're not at the top of the pecking order. It's not the fact that you're not the, 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 the cream. You're not at the top. It is the truth that God has chosen you. And so the angel says to her, favored woman, the Lord is with you. I want to say to someone, in spite of your circumstances, in spite of the challenges, in spite of the stigma, in spite of the attempts of the enemy to box you in, in spite of where you're coming from, in spite of the things, the mistakes you have made, I want to say to you that the Spirit of God is saying to you, this morning, you are a favored person. The Lord is with you. The Bible goes on in verse 29 to 33. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. And wouldn't you be confused and disturbed? I mean, there's nothing that shows that I am favored at the level you're saying, Mr. Angel. I am just a normal person who is just carrying a child. And just you, who's, who, I'm just a normal person who is just trying to get on with life. I'm a normal person who is in a relationship with a normal man who has a normal job. I'm just normal. We are planning to get married and then I will get pregnant and carry a child. But the angel says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. There it is again. You have found favor with God. How did Mary find favor with God? I can't really tell you. No one can really tell you. It was a decision that God made himself. When we get to heaven, you might get a chance to ask, how did you find favor with God? I can't really tell you. It's God who decides himself. He just decides to show mercy to whom he decides to show mercy. And he had decided that Mary had found favor with him. I'm speaking to someone and I'm saying to you, you can't explain it, 
but you have found favor with God. And then he goes on to tell her, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, in her case, it was the promise of a child. In your case, it could be the promise of a child. But then it could be any of the other things that God has promised you that your circumstances are saying it's not your portion. That's not your portion. Mary asked, understandably, verse 34, how can this happen? I am a virgin. What was she doing? She was putting the limitations to the promise of God before the angel. In the same way that we do, when God wants to do, God says, you're favored, you're favored. And we say, yes, God, but have you noticed my circumstance? Do you know my past? Do you know the kind of family I came from? Do you know that I don't have the material resources? We put the obstacle, what we perceive as the obstacle. She says, I know what you have said. I know it's, you say it's from God. I know you say I have favor with God, but I am a virgin. And this can't happen to a virgin. The Spirit of God says to her, verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. How do I know that God's favor can carry you over the obstacle, carry you through the trial, carry you through the difficulty, how do I know that God's favor can take you to where God wants you to go in spite of your circumstances, in spite of your past? I know because it will be the work of the Spirit of God. My prayer is that like Mary, you will cooperate with the Spirit of God. For what did Mary say? Be it unto me as, as, you, as, you, have, as you have decided, as the Lord has decided. Cooperate with the Spirit of God so that you can see God's plans and purposes come to pass in your life. God is a God of grace. He's constantly qualifying those whose circumstances and other people disqualify. Number three, what did Jesus reveal to us about God? That God is a God of mercy. And mercy is when you're guilty. But God says she's guilty but it's okay. I've decided that the judgment is not hers or his. If there's any story that tells us this about Christ and reveals, since he's the express image of God, reveals the kind of God that God is, it surely must be the story of the woman caught in adultery. An amazing story, very telling story. John the 8th chapter, verses 1 to 11. The crowd gathered and brought a woman to the front of the crowd. She had been caught in adultery. Now, you know, the unfair, the, 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 the unfair systems of life. You wonder where is the man who was, since she could not have committed adultery herself, where is the man? But of course, I suspect that the man had mixed with the crowd and had picked up his own stone to stone the woman that he had been with a short while ago. 
And so they brought the woman to the front of the crowd. And they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? What were they saying? The reality of the children of Israel, the revelation that they have, says this woman must die. We must stone her. That's what the law says. Stone her to death. Now, of course, they were trying to trap him because they knew that he had brought a revolution. It was a revolution of grace as opposed to the law. And they knew that the revolution of grace would say that he should be gracious, the, reveal the gracious part of God to this woman. And if he did that, they felt that they would have trapped him in saying that he was disdaining the law of Moses. But how many know you can't trap Jesus? So he stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up and said, all right, but let the one who has never seen throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman, only Jesus and mercy, only the woman and mercy standing before her. Mercy, grace, and love standing before her. Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn, condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I go and sin no more. It is not a, a throne of condemnation. It's a throne that guarantees us grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. The woman was caught in the act. She was guilty. The law said stone her to death. But fortunately, she encountered mercy and grace. And whilst the judgment was death by stoning, mercy held the hand of judgment in abeyance. How many times have you and I experienced this revelation of God, touched God on this side, where mercy has held judgment? None of us would be alive if mercy had not spoken on our, on our behalf. Where judgment says yes, how many times in your life and in my life has mercy said no? That's the revelation of God. You know, I love this story because I will certainly, one of the things I will be asking when I get to heaven is what did you write on the floor? I really wonder. But do you know, I can hazard a guess since he knows everything. And he said, the one who has not seen cast the first stone. Guess what he must have been writing? On so-and-so day, he knew all their names. Say, David, you and Philomena were in this place. On so-and-so day, Johnson, you and Rachel were in this place. On so-and-so day, Amina, you, you, you were with Amina on so-and-so day. All this committing adultery. So the fact that it hasn't been exposed was mercy being extended to you hard-hearted people. So this woman was caught. Show her mercy. Aren't you glad that we're not left in the hands of human beings? Aren't you glad that we're left in the hands of God? Is it any wonder that David said he would rather fall into the hands of God than the hands of men? 
Because David understood even then that it's a God, he's a God of mercy. And listen to what he said. Didn't any of them condemn you? He says, I don't condemn you. Anytime there's condemnation, it is from the pits of hell. It is from Satan. Our Lord and Savior, our God never condemns us. And he gives her an instruction that is, that is pertinent. Go and sin no more. He doesn't condone the sin, but he extends mercy to the person to give her another chance. He showed us God as a God of mercy. And number four, the last point. He showed us a revelation of God as a holy God. Now, the truth is that this is what undergirds the personality and the person of God, that God is holy. If there's one thing that is going on around the throne of God and has been going on from before creation and will continue, it's the is the is the the beasts of worship the, that the, those the, that create those and those beings created to worship God and one of the things they are saying is holy 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 can you imagine that they've been saying that for I don't know how long every second reciting the holiness of God because that is the the central thing in God's person and God's character, his holiness. Now, what is holiness? Because, you know, this is where the confusion arises. Because when we think holiness, we instantly think a form of dressing or we think uh, a certain style of life. But it is a bit more than that. It really is absolute perfection. That's about the only way I can describe it. It is absolute perfection. It is no hint of anything that is imperfect. It's really someone that is not of this, this part. He's of the, of, of the other. He's outside it. He is perfect. He is holy. And you know, the thing with holiness and a holy God is that when he sees sin or iniquity, because he is holy, the sin or the iniquity must incur his wrath and must be judged by him. It's the response of a holy God. So what does God do with you and I? Because now in, in the old days, he just judged it. You know, you touch the boundary, stone to death. You touch the mountain, you die. You made a mistake, you die. You, I mean, you just, the priests went in to worship in the Holy of Holies. They made a mistake, they fall down there. I mean, the judgment was pretty severe. But then his son comes, a whole revolution, and presents a whole new dimension of God. But then God cannot change his holiness because his holiness demands that he judge this. So what does God do? I'll tell you what God does. The first thing he does is send Christ to take on his wrath. You see, he must remain God and he must be able to say, I did judge the sin. I judged he judged your sin and my sin. He poured out his wrath on it. He sent his judgment upon it. So he says to Christ, they agree that let me go. I have no sin in me. I qualify to take on their sin. And so you can righteously judge me for their sin. And that's what he does. 
He judges Christ for our sin. Christ becomes our substitute. And so you can't say God didn't do what God is supposed to do. God judges sin and God judged Christ for our sin. The second thing he does is that he hides us in Christ so that when he looks down, he no longer sees us, but he sees Christ. So he continues to see perfection. So that's why we say we are in Christ. This is the beauty of being a Christian. We are hidden in Christ. So God looks down. He doesn't see our imperfections, our frailties, and our failings. He doesn't see us slipping up. He sees Christ. That's the second thing he does. The third thing he does is that he makes a way for us to become like Christ, to become holy like Christ and like him. He makes a way for us. So he doesn't set an unattainable standard of holiness. He sets a standard of holiness that you and I can attain. So the Bible says in 1 John 3 verse 4, Anyone who indulges in sin lives in moral anarchy, for the definition of sin is breaking God's law. It goes on to say in verse 5, And you know without a doubt that Jesus was revealed to eradicate sins, and there's no sin in him. Jesus came to deal with it decisively, as we have said. Anyone who continues to live in union with him will not sin. How do we stop sinning? We continue to live in union with him. We are born again. We join ourselves with him. But guess what? I'm sure you will say, but I'm, I'm, I'm born again, and, and still I made a mistake. Still I sinned. Um, still I continue to sin. Still I'm trapped in some cycle of sin I'm trying to break out of. We all have stories like that. So what does the Bible mean that we're, if we're in union with him, he will not sin? Verse 6. But the one who continues sinning hasn't seen him with discernment or known him by intimate experience. So we get into union with him. We're supposed to stop sinning. But we still find out that we're sinning. We're still doing certain things we shouldn't do. Still not, not living right. Still a bit of anger, a bit of jealousy, a bit of envy. Told a lie here. You know, uh, lost in after, uh, after, after things and after people here and there. You know, so there's still stuff. So Jesus says that the problem, uh, John says the problem is one of discernment or knowledge by intimate experience. He's saying the way you live a holy life is to discern him, to see, recognize, or apprehend him. The way you live a holy life is to know him by intimate experience. It's almost like saying, that, uh, this is the way I describe it. The closer you get, the more you're being transformed just by getting closer. And as you get closer, you are changed into his person and his glory. The more you stand in the mirror and behold him in the mirror, the more you become like the image in the mirror. That's why this season of the pursuit of God, intimacy with God, has been life-changing. But I want to say to you that it's just life-changing in terms of a start. That it's not a thing. It is for us to give ourselves to this as a lifestyle. Because the closer we come, 
the more intimate we get, the more we discern, the more we apprehend, the more we see, the more we behold, the more we become like the image in the mirror. And the image in the mirror is God expressed through the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please don't let the pursuit stop. Don't let the pursuit of intimacy stop. That has become a lifestyle for us in Jesus' name. And you know, as I end, if there is one prayer that has totally seized Shola and I, uh, our hearts, it's the prayer, the three prayers that Paul prays in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 17 to 20. Um, first prayer that I may know him as the spirit of wisdom and revelation gives me intimate knowledge of him. Second prayer that I may know the hope of my calling. I may understand my salvation and understand my inheritance in the future. Third prayer that I may come to grasp the immeasurable greatness of his power that is at work in me and know it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. I commend that prayer to you as a life prayer uh, as you press in, uh, coming closer and closer to the image and being transformed as you do so. Amen and amen and amen. You know, as I end, I present to you this revelation of God, a God of love, a God who is love, a God of mercy, a God of grace and a holy God. And I ask you, do you know this God? Have you started this journey? How You ask me, how do I start the journey? I say to you, by asking that image of God, his ex express image, his son, to come into your heart. And you start the journey. When he comes into your heart, he gives you his spirit. That's the helper on this journey. He helps us. He expresses the love to our hearts. He takes us when we are weak encourages us on this journey as we walk towards that mirror image. And so if there's anyone out there you've never given your life to Jesus and you would love to do so, I'd love to pray with you. Um, if you're there and you say this prayer with me, that's all God needs to know that you want him in your life. Heavenly Father, I receive your son Jesus, your express image into my life. I accept him as my Lord and Savior. I commit to turning away from any sins or a sinful life and to live in a life that is pleasing to you. I receive your spirit into my heart to help me on this journey. I declare that by this prayer, I'm now a child of yours, born again into your household. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.